<laughs> You're all looking at me. <laughs> good morning. <laughs> hey, good morning, everyone. Um, if you guys don't hate me for this, can I have everybody that's able to stand, stand? And if you can't stand, don't worry about it. You don't have to follow directions either anyway. Not in church. Just everywhere else, I guess, huh? Uh, my name's Jesse, kind of a guest worshiper here. and just love worshiping God. You guys, I just want to pray for us real before we jump in. And, um, yeah, but I just like to start standing up because, man, when the king's in the room... <laughs> You're either kneeling or standing, I guess. I don't know. But Father, we bless your name this morning. Just tell him right now. Say, I bless your name. Say, God, we're here for you. Not for fancy songs. Not to make ourselves feel better. We're not even here to get rid of our problems. We're here to worship you, God. Yeah. Amen. Come on, you guys. That's good. All right, give me one. And you can sit down or do whatever you want to do after we sing. Father, we love you. Before we start singing, let's just put your heart in a place of worship. If you came in with some burdens, just let the yoke of the Lord take those off right now. Sing, I searched the world, but it couldn't fill me. So I searched the world, but it couldn't fill me. Praise treasures that fade never enough. And you came along, and you came along to put me back together. Every desire now satisfied. Oh, here in your love. Oh, sing, there's nothing. Oh, there's nothing.
Come on. So nothing is better than you. Sing it again. Come on. Oh, there's nothing so better than you. There's nothing, Lord, is better than are happy to be in the house of the Lord. 
be around your family to worship, to worship the King. You can do this at home. But then that person to your left and to your right, they would be there, likely. Let's just sing it one more time. I just love worshiping the King. All our problems, they just, they just fade away when you look at Him. The strong, capable Father. Oh, there's nothing so better than you. Oh, there's nothing better than you. There's nothing, Lord. Nothing is better than you. One more time, because I can't stop. Oh, there's nothing better than you, Lord. There's nothing, no, better than you, Lord. There's nothing. It's all about you. Nothing is better than you. Come on. Can we give God a shout of praise? Come on. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, God. You're worthy. He's worthy. <laughs> Come on. Come on, we're here to worship the King. I know you came in with stuff, but you can leave it outside. And if you brought it in, just put it under your chair right now. You can pick it up on your way out if you want. Oh, oh he's so good. <laughs> and I love you, Lord. He never fails me And all my days I've been held in your hand From the moment that I wake up Until I lay my head And I will sing Of the goodness Let's just sing that again It's so good I love you, Lord I love you, Lord fails me in all my days I've been held in your hand from the moment that I wake up until I lay my head down, and I will sing of the goodness of God sing all my life all my life you have been faithful Like no other. I know you as 
I've been faithful. And all my life you have been so, so good. Every breath that I, I will let the rocks. And I will sing of your goodness of God. Let's just sing it again all my life. All my life you have been faithful. And all my life you have been so, so. Come on, just tell him this morning he's worthy. Every breath that I am able, I will sing of your goodness, oh God. So I will sing of your goodness. Oh God, sing your goodness is running. Your goodness is running after, is running after me. Your goodness is running after, is running after me. Yeah. With my life laid down, surrender now. I give you everything, everything, everything. Your goodness is running after, it's running, I don't have to chase you down. Your goodness is running after, it's running after me. With my life laid down, I surrender now, I give you everything. Your goodness is running after, it's running after me. All my life, come on, one last time. All my life you have been faithful. All my life. Come on, just tell him. And all my life you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, as I will sing of the goodness of God. And I will sing of the goodness. God, I will sing of your goodness, oh God. invite you into this place and into this time. We recognize that we don't just come here today to, to see one another. We don't just come here to get coffee and donuts, although we're grateful for them. We come to, to be with you, and we recognize we don't have to be in this place to be with you throughout the week. But we gather here together today to have an encounter with you and to allow you to do in our hearts whatever it is you want to do. So I know that Jesse would agree with me. We lay down whatever it is that we have planned for today. We invite you to help yourself to us. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you 
would guide this time. We pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. You guys can go ahead and grab a seat. Thank you, Jesse. Um, it's always funny when you close your eyes and begin to pray and you open them and you realize you've been standing this way as opposed to this way and you had no idea. Um, so today is Palm Sunday, which is a huge day on the Christian calendar because it marks the beginning of Easter week, which is, which is like, it is the most important week of our Christian celebration because it marks a, a celebration of the transition of us from being separated from God to being re reconciled to God. And I'm so grateful to get to share in it with you. Um, and so we wanted to do a few things today to mark that. One is we resurrected coffee and donuts, which is probably the reason why my son is now sitting at the back as opposed to the front where he normally sits so he can be closer to the donut table. Um, uh, another thing that I am really looking forward to is what we have planned for this week. We have Easter Sunday, we're not having just one service, but two services at 9 and 11. So for those of you who like to get an early start, come early. And for those of you who like to sleep in a little bit or eat your entire Easter basket before you show up, come at 11 with all of that sugar rush going on and worship with us. We will have children's ministry across the street for both of those services, and we will have coffee and donuts at both of those services as well. Um, but Easter is like the the wedding reception. It's the party, but it doesn't make a whole lot of sense without Good Friday, which is when the real work began. That's when what we celebrate on Easter Sunday, the work was actually done. And so I, and it is, I will tell you, Good Friday is perhaps the most significant and meaningful service of the entire year for me. I'm looking forward to it, and I want to invite you to come. We have one service at 7 p.m. There will be children's ministry for the littles, but it will also be family-friendly, okay? It's not going to be something that is so brutal that you wouldn't want your kids to be in it. I think it will be incredibly significant to your kids if they're old enough to understand the, the words that are coming out of my mouth, Okay? And for those of you who don't typically understand the words coming out of my mouth, you guys can go across the street and hang with Sherry. I know she'd be welcoming you. Um, today we, is also significant because it marks the end of a 15-week journey we've been on. And that's a journey through a book that at the beginning of this whole thing was really scary to me. It's the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And if you had asked me six months ago if I would be sad that the Revelation series was coming to an end, I would laugh at you and say, heck no, I'm glad it's behind us. And yet I find myself coming into today a little bit sad that we're coming to the, book, to the end of our study through the book of Revelation because here's what I have discovered. It's not scary. It is incredibly relevant and it is incredibly encouraging. And that's because I have come to realize that the book of Revelation isn't like some crystal ball that you can peer into to try to discern what the end of the world is going to look like, but everybody who looks comes away with a slightly different interpretation of what that's going to be. The book of Revelation has more akin to a discipleship manual for image bearers of God who are in this in-between time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And that makes John, he's not some Christian Nostradamus who's trying to predict what's going to happen. John is a loving pastor sharing hope with men and women who are living under intense pressure from the society around them to conform, both in the first century and in the 21st century. It was relevant for them, 
And it is completely relevant for us as well. So, yes, I'm sad that we're coming to the end of our Revelation study, but it ends on such an incredibly high note that I can't wait for today. Because we're talking about the end of all things. And have you ever given some thought to what the end will look like? What will happen after you shuffle off this mortal coil and your body dies, at least in the form that it's in right now? Have you ever given any consideration to what happens after that? Thank you, Darlene. Because I will tell you that I have kind of picked up some ideas of what the afterlife will look like. What will, we talk about eternal life all the time. But what does eternal life actually look like? If you'd asked me a few years ago what I thought eternal life would look like, I would pull from almost the mosaic of thoughts and ideas and pictures that I got growing up, whether it was conversations in passing in my family or conversations at church. I I never had a, a pastor who ever really taught on what eternal life would look like, but just more would make reference to it during altar calls. I think probably my picture of what what eternal life would look like was shaped mostly by Looney Tunes and Disney movies like All Dogs Go to Heaven. Like those were the most formative pictures that I got of heaven. And I came away with this belief. Heaven, or eternal life I should say, you sit on a cloud, strumming a harp, and it's an eternal worship service. That's the picture I got growing up. Maybe it's slightly different from the picture you got, but that's what I ended up carrying in with me of what eternal life looks like. Jesus died so we could play harps on clouds. And, as much, and I will tell you, I would prefer that over the alternative every single day of the week. But if I'm bluntly honest with you, Playing a harp on a cloud for all of eternity does not sound all that exciting. I'm sorry if that sounds, I don't know what it sounds like to you, but I will tell you that that is the honest posture that I carried throughout my childhood and throughout my adolescence and my, my, you know, young adult status. So imagine my surprise when I open up the Bible and particularly the book of Revelation and I read about what eternal life actually looks like, and I realize, oh, we don't actually spend all of eternity in heaven. Yes, we go to heaven, but it is simply the first leg in a round-trip ticket back to a renewed earth. And the earth that we will come back to and ultimately spend eternity in is very similar to the world we inhabit, except that there are a couple of things, a couple of really big things that are missing. The first thing that will be missing from the renewed heaven and the new earth that we will inhabit is the adversary, Satan. The one who from the very beginning has sought to thwart the purpose and the plans of God. He is no longer there to tempt us. Because he has been locked up in the lake of burning fire. He's gone and he's never coming back to try to woo us away from the one who made us in his image to work alongside of him. So that's good news. But you know what else is missing from the renewed earth that we will come back to and spend eternity in? The curse. And for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, the curse is something that has been a part of the world and of humanity's experience since as far back as Genesis chapter 3, 
Remember, God created us in his image to co-labor alongside of him in the care and the cultivation of his good creation. And he put lots and lots and lots of really good things in that garden called Eden. That word Eden means delight. So the garden of delight, he put lots of wonderful things for us to enjoy. Everything was good. But there was one thing in the garden that he said, hey, that tree right there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't touch it. Well, of course, when the enemy shows up, comes weaseling in, and he begins to question the truthfulness of God's kind of perimeter, parameter that he put on this. Wait a minute. Did he really say not to eat that or to touch it? And Eve says, well, yeah. He said, if we eat the fruit, then we'll die. And he goes, ah, I'm sorry. Hold on. That statement has been independently checked by fact checkers and found to be false. So you can disregard it because you won't really die. And in that moment, the enemy begins to twist a different idea. The one that made you supposedly in his image, he's holding out on you because he has retained from you. He's held back something. You're not really like him because you don't know the difference between good and evil. You're deficient. And so he begins by casting doubt upon their perception of God as being good. And then he begins to cast doubt upon whether they are really complete in and of themselves as he made them. And in that moment, they look at the fruit and they say, ooh, that actually looks pretty good and I like what it can give us because God didn't give it to us. And so they reach for the fruit and they eat it. And in that moment, sin enters the world and it begins to corrupt their perception of God, of themselves, it drives a wedge between them where they start pointing fingers and doing the blame game, and they hide from the God who created them to be in relationship and co-labor alongside him. They hide from him. So then God shows up, walking in the garden, and he finds them huddling in the shadows, hiding behind some ferns, and he says, guys, why are you hiding? And they tell him it's because we ate the fruit, and we realized we were naked, and we were embarrassed, we were ashamed. And in that moment, God does something that I think for a lot of us could seem really harsh. He, he levels some curses upon them. First, he curses the serpent. Basically, you will live in enmity between humanity, and ultimately your head will be crushed as you continue to, try to strike the heel of humanity. Your head will be crushed, and you will lose. But then he looks at man, and he looks at woman, our most ancient ancestors, and he says, I, he realizes their hearts are bent towards things other than himself. He created humanity to co-labor alongside of him and to be in relationship with him and to find our fulfillment in him alone, and he realized we have a propensity to find our fulfillment in many, many other things, in so-called saviors like fruit like our finances, like a, a, a political party, like you fill in the blank. We find our fulfillment. We find our consolation. We find our end in other things. And so he does something that might seem on the surface to be punitive, but is just the opposite. It's redemptive. He curses humanity. And specifically, he curses three things. Their relationship with one another, their relationship in raising children, and the work of their hands. Those three things. And why those? 
Because those are the things that humanity has the most natural propensity to look to to find our fulfillment. And this is not punitive. This is not him being a harsh God who's vindictive because they disobeyed him. This is a loving father who recognizes that humanity's heart is naturally bent away from him and he wants to bend them back to him. And so he curses the very things that we will normally look to for our fulfillment. And he says, these things will no longer have the ability to satisfy or to ultimately fulfill you. And in so doing, he cut a God-shaped hole into every single one of us that can only be filled by him. And so these curses, which seem punitive, are actually redemptive. They were the loving act of a loving father, but they had horrendous ramifications on our life because we experience every single day the effects of the curse in our relationships with one another, in our relationships with our children, in the work of our hands. It's never satisfying. It's always frustrating. It is constantly full of thorns and thistles that hurt. And so we look forward to the day we get to retire we look forward to the day that the kids finally move out. We look forward, some people, if we're really bluntly honest, look forward to the day that the other person that we're married to goes away. As harsh as that might sound, that is the human predicament. That, that is what, what has infiltrated and caused our life in this good world that God created to feel and taste so dang bitter. And so, in the renewed heaven and the renewed earth that we enter back into, there will be no more curse, and that is good news. We're going to find out why. So would you like to get a taste of what we have to look forward to in the renewed heaven and the new earth? I would. So let's go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 21, and we are going to slowly walk through the picture that we get of what we have to look forward to. Revelation 21 is the second to last chapter of the entire Bible, so it's probably at the far right side of your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat back in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, please take that one. Or if it's super beat up, um, come and let Pastor Jeff know, and we will get you a brand new one that you can call your very own. Okay. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now, I will be honest with you. If we take that literally, I'm kind of bummed. Because I'm, I'm, I'm an ex-lifeguard, and I love the ocean. And if there's no more ocean, where am I going to go body surfing? Where is Pastor Jeff going to go body boarding when he no longer has to worry about the cable coming out of his heart? So that, you know, like, wh where is he going to go? Where am I going to go? And thankfully, what we are getting told is not that there will be no ocean. Remember, in Revelation, the sea has been symbolic of the chaotic forces in this world that stand opposed to the order of our Father God, who speaks the chaos into order. The sea symbolizes the chaos that naturally exists in our world. Remember, it was out of the sea that the beast, the first beast, the Antichrist emerged to try to lead God's people astray. 
And what this is telling us that there is no more sea is that there will be no more source of chaos, no more antichrists, those who stand opposed to Christ, those who place themselves up like they're Christ themselves, no more antichrists to try to lead us astray. But there will also be no more chaos in God's good creation, no more hurricanes that wreak havoc on New Orleans and other places, no more earthquakes that shake and shatter, no more car accidents and bicycle accidents that bring sorrow and sadness to our lives, no more of this chaos that we are used to eating, this rotten fruit in this corrupted creation, it's gone. And that is good news. I believe by faith that there will be an ocean and the waves will be perfect for body surfing. And surfers will have their own place. They can stay far away. Verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Again, we will not spend eternity in heaven, sitting on clouds, strumming harps. We will spend eternity on this renewed earth that has had the corrupting power of the, the curse removed from it. So it is as God intended it to be all the way back there in the Garden of Eden. That's what we get to look forward to. And what will that be like? Verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, just as he was doing in the garden. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of those things has passed away. What we have experienced over the last two, two and a half years, the effects of COVID on our life, no more. There will never be another pandemic like covid or anything else. There will no longer be cancer in our bodies. No longer need to carry around our oxygen to get a breath like Tony has to do. No longer be kidney stones. I know many of you are dealing with that. No longer be tumors. No longer be mental illness, which is just as debilitating. No longer be anxiety and depression and suicidal thoughts. No longer be divorce. No longer be the damaging effects of this broken, corrupted, sin-scarred world that we currently inhabit. And ultimately, there will be no more death, and that is good news. That's what we have to look forward to, although we're not currently experiencing that right now. Verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. Now, just pause for a moment, because sometimes people read that slightly differently. We invert that to suggest that God is saying, I am making all new things. And that's not true. He didn't start by creating the world and then watching it kind of spin out of control when sin happened. Then he goes, oh man, I totally screwed up. My first project, scrap the whole thing. Let's start over and make something totally radically different. That's not what he's saying. God doesn't make mistakes. He didn't make a mistake when he spoke the world into existence in the first place. He is renewing all things. 
And that means he's taking the world as he intended it, that he called good in the beginning, and he is simply removing the corrupting influence. Satan, chaos, and the the effects of our sin, the curse. Because Satan's no longer around, he no longer needs to have something that bends our hearts back towards him because we're already with him, dwelling with him. And so he is not making new things, starting over. He is renewing what already is. And that's why he removes us for a a period of time, and we go be with him in heaven while he scours the earth, kind of resets it back to how it was originally intended, and then he brings us back to dwell with him. But to dwell where? Well, that's where we get to hear about next. Verse 9. Nope, nope, verse 6. He said to me, it is done. I can't help but think about the the words Jesus spoke on the cross to tell us that it is finished. It's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Oh, I want that. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magical arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. That is the second death. And you might think, wow, in this picture of the, the new garden of delight, this new heaven and new earth, why is he bringing up that some people won't be there? Why is he bringing up this kind of what feels perhaps like a harsh warning? And I would suggest to you it's because the book of Revelation is not written to be a crystal ball giving us a picture of what is coming. The book of Revelation is primarily written to be a discipleship manual. And so he is saying to people who find themselves living in this in-between time, living in a time where we still have the adversary wandering around like a prowling lion looking for whom he may devour, he is saying to us who are having our hearts pulled away by a society that says, hey, you just, just act like us and you will flourish. Just, what's the big deal? You can have your faith, and you can have your fun. God's just being a killjoy. And he's saying to men and women who are being hard-pressed on every side, if you keep your eyes fixed on me, and you resist the pressure of the world to bend a knee and to, to take that pinch of incense and throw it on the brazier and say, Caesar is Lord, whatever that looks like in our society. If you resist the pressure to bend a knee and to worship something other than me. This is what you have to look forward to. But if you don't, this is not what you have in store. Can you see why I suggest to you that the book of Revelation is a discipleship manual, more than like a Nostradamus kind of prognosis of what's coming? Verse 9. Now we get a taste of what we have to look forward to. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Okay, hold on a second, Eric. A few weeks ago, 
when we talked about the wedding feast of the Lamb, you said, we, the church, are the bride of Christ. Now, John seems to be suggesting that the bride is actually Jerusalem. So which one is it? And I would suggest to you it's both. In the same way that we call this building the church. But what do I constantly try to remind you guys? Who's the church? We're the church. And it's not just this place. This is just the box that we gather in a few times a week. But we are the church, and so we get to go be the church 24-7 in our spheres of influence. And in the same way, Jerusalem is the bride in the sense that it is the place that the bride of Christ, the church, gets to reside and live with Jesus. It is the box that we get to live and move and be with Jesus together. Does that make sense? So that's what he's saying here. Jerusalem is the bride in the same way that the church, this building, is the church. It is what houses the real church. And Jerusalem is what houses the bride. This is the place he has been preparing for all of this time for us to get to, to enjoy. This, I go to my father's house to prepare a place. This is that place he's been preparing. Do you want to know what it's like? I sure do. So let's read about it. Verse 10. He carried me away in spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gate. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates in the east, three in the north, three in the south, and three on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So we have, again, the 12 disciples represented in the foundations of these walls. And we have the 12 gates, the 12 tribes of Israel. And the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. And he measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and as high as it was long. The angel measuring the wall used human measurement and it was found to be 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. 12 of them. The first foundation was jasper. The second was sapphire. The third gate was agate. The fourth was emerald. The fifth was onyx. The sixth was ruby. The seventh was crystallite. The seventh was beryl. The ninth was topaz. The tenth was turquoise. The eleventh was jacinth. And the twelfth was amethyst. There will be a test on this at the end of the service. There will not be. We're going to talk about the significance of this in a moment. The twelve gates were twelve pearls each gate made with a single pearl. This is, by the way, is where we get the idea that heaven has the pearly gates. This is where it comes from. And it's not talking about heaven. It's talking about the new Jerusalem. Each gate is literally a pearl, one big pearl. Those are some big pearls. I'd like to see the oysters that those came out with. My wife would like to eat those oysters. The great street of the city was gold, as pure as transparent glass. Again, the, the streets of heaven are paved in gold. No, the streets of the new Jerusalem are paved in gold. The most valuable metal in terms of what we like to decorate and, and value 
is asphalt in the new heavens and earth. We'll walk on streets of gold in the new Jerusalem. But I want to back up for just a moment because I know I went through a lot of numbers there and I went through a lot of description. And again, in apocalyptic literature, numbers are, have great significance. They are not intended necessarily to be taken literally so much as symbolically. So what do the numbers that we keep coming... There was one number in particular that we kept running across in this section. Who wants to take a guess what it was? Twelve. Thank you so much for playing along. The number 12 came up over and over and over. Twelve gates, each one with, you know, written the name of one of the tribes of Israel. In other words, it is all there for all of the tribes to come and participate in. There are 12 foundations, 12 different precious stones that are decorating those foundations. And on each of the foundations is written one of the names of one of the 12 disciples. But it's not just those it's also when we come across, for instance, how thick the wall is, 144 cubits. I have no idea how big a cubit is, but it's thick. And 144, who wants to take a wild guess what the square root of 144 is? Yeah, 12, right? And it's not just that, it's when you start measuring how long the wall is, 120, or I'm sorry, 12,000 stadia. 12, and then the number 10 is a lot, times 10, and a lot, a lot, times another 10, a whole heck of a lot. It's really, really long. Somebody did the, the math on it and found that it was 1,500 miles long on the wall. And that's a big deal. And then you, you, you start reading that it's not just that long, it's also that wide. So it's 1,500 miles wide. And it's also 1,500 miles tall. Now, a couple of things this tells us. First off, it's really, really, really big. So, in fact, I've had somebody kind of put together a little image to show us just how big Jerusalem would be. Can we put that picture up there for a moment? This is a rendition of how big the new Jerusalem would be. That's underneath it. If That's a globe. And underneath it is North America. You see, it's pretty much covering most of North America. It's a really big place, and it would need to be in order to fit all of the image bearers of God living together throughout history, right? But another thing I want to point out is it looks freakishly tall, doesn't it? I mean, when you think about the fact that our atmosphere only goes up about 62 miles and then space begins, and this is 1,500 miles tall, that means that if you live in the upper Deck, if you like to, you know, have one of the top floor accommodations, you better have a space suit. <laughs> or better be really well insulated from the outside because otherwise you're going to lose pressure and you're dead. But there's no death in the New Jerusalem, so that doesn't ever happen, I'm sure. <clears throat> Again, numbers are not intended in Revelation to be pressed as literal so much as symbolic. And what is this symbolic of? The fact that it is just as long as it is wide and just as tall as it is long and wide. The New Jerusalem is a perfect cube, a perfect square. And there is one other building in all of the Bible that is found to be a perfect cube. Who wants to take a guess what that building is? Yeah. It's not just the temple. It is the Holy of Holies. In Scripture... When we have the Holy of Holies described, the place where God's throne resides, the place 
where people, actually one person, the high priest would go to meet with God and only one time a year, after, on the Day of Atonement, after he's dealt with all of his sin and all of the people's sin, he gets to go in there, but he has a cord wrapped around his leg just in case he falls dead in the presence of the Holy God. And now we're being told that all of the New Jerusalem is the new Holy of Holies. God resides there, and we, God's people, get to reside there with him. That is the symbolism of what we're being told. And just in case we miss the symbolism of the numbers, of the size, we just need to read on in order to, to see it again. Verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Hold on a second, Eric. I thought you just said that the city was the temple. Now, you, now we're being told that God himself and Jesus are the temple. Which one is it? It's both. In the New Jerusalem, we get to reside with God, but it, the New Jerusalem also exists within the holy Shekinah glory of God. And it reminds me of something that the Apostle Paul said in Acts chapter 17 when he was talking to a bunch of Athenian philosophers. Can we throw it up on the screen? He said this, God's not far from us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And in the new Jerusalem, that will be absolutely true. In the new Jerusalem, we will both reside with God in the Holy of Holies, but also the Holy of Holies, the new Jerusalem, will reside within God himself. Everything we do will be within the glory of his glorious presence. And what will that kind of stuff look like? Let's keep reading. Verse 23, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. God himself is the source of light that people are able to move around with. Verse 24, the nations will walk by its light and the kings of earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will those pearly gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, we could skip over this section and keep going, but there's something really important that this section reveals to us. We will not live all of eternity kind of cooped up in the New Jerusalem. Even though it's really, really big, and we probably could, people will go out and come back in. People will bring the product that they develop, the stuff they grow, the stuff they make, and they will bring it into the New Jerusalem. And do you know what this means? There will be work in, the, in eternity. We will actually get to work with our hands. People will take the product, the, 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 they will take seed, and they will put it in the ground, and it will produce fruit and vegetables, and they will bring that into the New Jerusalem for everybody to enjoy. And you might say, wait a minute, there's work in the afterlife? And I'm saying, yes, there is, and that's actually a good thing. Because I don't know about you, I love to worship with song, but I don't want to play a harp for all of eternity. That sounds really boring. That's going to get old eventually. So yes, there will be work, but it will be unlike any work you or I have ever experienced for one huge reason. The curse is gone. And that means the frustration that you and I experience in work will be gone as well. So rather than it being soul-sucking, it will be life-giving 
we will find joy as we do what we were created to do, to join God in the care and the cultivation of his creation, to, to take the raw resources of this good earth that he has created and make something beautiful out of it that is an act of worship itself. I think of Terry, who loves to take pigments and loves to paint beautiful portraits of the beauty that she sees. I think of myself. I love to go walk back bay and take pictures of it because there's just something so joyful. I mean, that is literally an act of worship, of enjoying and celebrating the beauty that God has created. Other people, like Nassim, who love to take wood and rock and bits of metal and fashion it into something beautiful, like a table that people can sit around and have relationship in or a gathering space of some sort. I think of the hands that went into making this place beautiful. We will get to work. We will get to co-labor alongside God in making the new earth even better as an act of worship to him and as an act of being able to cultivate relationship with one another. But it will be untarnished, unsullied by the curse And so rather than it being laborious, it'll be life-giving. Don't you see that's good news? Now, one thing that you've probably kind of been picking up on as I've been going through this description of the New Jerusalem is how similar it sounds to what God, to what's described in Genesis 1 and 2 particularly in Genesis 2, when we talk about being in the garden of delight with God. There is so much of Eden that is kind of recreated or re-experienced for the first time in the New Jerusalem. Remember, we were created by God in his image to co-labor alongside of him. And now we get to do that. And in case you you haven't been able to pick up on that. Let's read just a little bit more. We're going to go about five more verses into chapter 22, and it will become explicit that both John and God, who is giving John this vision, want us to see that this is Eden restored, only now it's not a garden, now it's a city, but it is a return to Eden. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing down from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. And if you read the descriptions in in Genesis chapter 2 of what Eden is like, it talks about a river, several rivers flowing through it. Not only that, on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of that tree are for the healing of the nations. The last place we heard about the tree of life being accessible to human beings was where? In the Garden of Eden. It was there for them to enjoy its fruit until... They disobeyed God and they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And at that point, the tree of life became unaccessible to them. They were kicked out of Eden specifically so they could not access the tree. And now, now the fruit of that tree is available to all residents. And it is not only good for food, but it is also good for healing the nations. And just in case we didn't get the point that the curse is gone, we read it now spelled out in black and white in verse 3. No longer will there be any 
curse. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Now, I want to pause there. Because that is one of the most, verse 4 is one of the most significant verses we have read for one huge reason. Time after time after time in the Old Testament, people declare, I want to see the face of God. Elijah, let me just see your face and it'll be enough. Moses, let me just see your face and it'll be enough. And God over and over tells them one word, no. Tell you what. I will put my hand over you. I will pass by. And once I'm passed, you can see my back, but you cannot see my face. Because if you see my face, you will die. Here's the thing. God didn't say no to them because he was shy. God said no to them because he is holy. And humanity, at least during the corruption of the curse, we are not holy. We are to God what darkness is to light. If you are in an absolutely black room, completely you know, cut off from the light, and you flip a switch and the light comes on, the light eradicates the darkness. The darkness doesn't just flee. It is destroyed by its presence in the light or by the presence of the light. And in the same way, when we see God face to face in all of his holiness, we who are solely by sin would be completely undone and destroyed. And so God in his great mercy hides his face from us. But in the new Jerusalem, where the curse is gone and our sin has been dealt with and judgment has been passed and we now get to reside with him, we get to see him face to face. Not just that. We get to co-labor alongside of him in caring for and creating new wonderful things out of the raw materials he's left for us as an act of worship and enjoying him and one another. This is good. This is way better than playing harps on a cloud, and I'm excited for it. Are you? So this is what we have to look forward to. This is what is in our future. But I have to ask the question as I do every week, so what? This picture is beautiful and this is kind of the the picture we are left with at the end of the book of Revelation. But so, how now shall we live in light of this? Because we are human beings who do not reside in the new Jerusalem. We are human beings who reside in the United States of America in the 21st century in a world that is still corrupted by the curse, is still influenced by the the adversary, our enemy, who is still prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, still pulled and pressured to conform to the pattern of this world, whether it be from the YouTube videos that we watch, or the news that we watch, or the people that we follow and celebrate. You know, what we celebrate becomes the norm, and the world is celebrating a whole lot of wonky stuff that is completely contrary to the heart of our God. So how now shall we live in light of what we're looking at? I want to return to a metaphor that I introduced us to in the very first week of our study of Revelation. And that is the metaphor of a woman in labor. It is amazing the pain that you ladies went through to bring us into this world, to have a child. And it is amazing the pain you can endure 
when you know what that pain's purpose is, when you know that there is an outcome that is so much better than the pain you're currently enduring, you can endure an immense amount of pain without being completely undone. Am I right, ladies? Okay, that's good, because I, had, I have to take your word for it. I, I have a hard time with splinters. I don't even want to think about it. And in the same way, we live in a time where we are experiencing great labor pains in our lives. The pressure, the pain of the kingdom of God breaking into our reality. And guess what? The reality of this corrupted, sin-warped world pushes back. And that's where we have friction. That's where we have this labor pain. And it is painful. And it feels like those contractions, those labor pains are getting closer and closer and closer together, which is why it feels like we are in the end times and we've been in the end times for 2,000 years since Jesus took on flesh, entered our reality and went to the cross. We have been in the end times, but it feels like the end times are getting closer and closer to their end. And it's painful. And in this in-between time, as we wait for this, this is what we keep our, this is what gives us hope to keep going, to keep, to keep enduring the painful pressure of living in this sin-scarred world is that this brokenness, this friction doesn't get the last word. Jesus does. God does. And this is what we have to look forward to. And so in the meantime, we can endure a whole lot. We can endure a whole lot of persecution or even just pushback. Let's be honest. The kind of persecution we experience is laughable compared to what other people are experiencing around this world. But still, it's uncomfortable. And we can endure mockery on social media without trying to slap back. We can endure ostracization from our own families who think that we use our faith as a crutch. We can endure curses from people who want to mock us, and instead of returning a curse for a curse, we, in, we return blessing for a curse. We pray for those who persecute us. Why? Because we know that this world is not our home, at least not as it currently stands. And we know that we have been given so much grace and loved in spite of our unlovable nature that we can then return that back to others who also don't deserve it. We can live in such a way that we, rather than pushing people away from Jesus, we cause people to run to Jesus. That is what we are here to do. That is why God doesn't just you know, suck us up into heaven the moment we put our faith in him is so that we can live as ambassadors of hope to a world that desperately needs it right now. Because there's very little hope when you turn on the news. There's very little hope when you doom scroll through social media. There is very little hope in this broken, sin-warped world. But you guys have gotten a taste of it this morning. May you live in the knowledge that that is our forever home. And it's way better than any plot of ground we might be able to scrape enough money together to buy here. And it'll en enable us, if we can keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and our hearts focused on the fact that 
the new Jerusalem's coming, it can help us endure a whole lot of pain and mistreatment in the here and now. And so I'm going to invite Jesse and the worship team to come forward, and I'm just going to pray over us who are experiencing pressure right now to conform. I'm going to pray over us who are feeling pretty hopeless right now. I'm going to pray over us who are the church, even though we've been gathering in this building we call the church, and who get to now go and be the church. I'm going to pray that God would fill us with his Holy Spirit so that we can reflect the hope that we have found in him. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us even though we're rebellious. And Jesus, thank you for the place that you are even now preparing and bringing into our reality that we get to spend eternity with you. Thank you that we get to look forward to to seeing you face to face and working shoulder to shoulder with you in bringing beauty out of the raw materials that you have made and restored back to their original default. We pray right now as men and women, image bearers who reside in a really messy, really painful period, as we see evil called good, as we see those who put their faith in you mocked, rejected, persecuted, as we might experience that ourselves, we put our hope in you alone because you are the only place we can find hope. You are the one with the words of life, Jesus. And we look forward to getting to spend eternity with you. But would you, Holy Spirit, fill us up so that as we go out of here, we go out as a people who rest in the hope that the brokenness of this sin-scarred world does not get the last word. We go out as people who are living Good Friday lives in light of Easter Sunday, knowing how it ends so that we can endure the pain of this time. And I pray, Father, that next Sunday as we gather together to celebrate, and even on Friday night, there would be others who need to hear this hope that we have found. But I'm so thankful that they don't need to walk into this building to come face to face with your church. We are your church. Now your church, your bride wants to worship you. Would you help us in doing that? Jesus, in your holy name, amen. Let's worship together. Why don't you guys stand with me, if you would. If you don't want to, you don't have to. So this is a new song I've been told, but it's, a, it's an easy one, and it's just, it's just so sweet. Before we jump in, though, let's just get our hearts. We just got to hear about the kingdom of heaven. So just close your eyes for a second and just lift your hearts to him. And just let him know you're thankful that he's a good God. And he knows everything about you. Still, he's good. There is none like you, God. So there is none. 
beyond your understanding. To worship beyond your feelings. To 
just feel the Lord saying today, we can only be as strong as our worship to Him. You'll only be as strong as your worship to Him. And I'm not trying to put us down because, man, Paul boasted in his weakness, didn't he? <laughs> but, man, my heart just wants to know how to worship Him every day. My heart wants to know how to lift up a song that's way bigger than me. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Sing holy. Holy are you, oh, all the angels cry. Holy is the Lord God, and all the earth reply. Holy are you, God, and all the angels cry.
throne of grace. I just have to say, as I was sitting here worshiping with new songs and old songs, this is a taste of what we have to look forward to, gathered together, worshiping our God with our voices, if we have instrumental giftings with our instruments. But guys, what we learned today is that what comes next is also a foretaste. The conversations you're going to have in here, or maybe you'll go out to lunch with somebody, that is a foretaste of what we have to look forward to. Some of you might take today and take a nap. That's a foretaste of the rest that we will get to look forward to. Some of you might do something you love, whether that's painting or writing a song or making something with your hands. That is a foretaste of what is to come. And yes, it's imperfect because it's still corrupted by the curse but this is a foretaste of eternity. And guys, it, worship doesn't stop here. It now gets to continue as the church leaves the building and goes out into your neighborhoods, back to your houses, back to your spheres of influence, as you just get to go be the church. I hope that you'll grab a few of these as you go and that you won't hold on to them or just stick them in your Bible or leave them in the back of your car and forget about them until after Easter and then go, oh, I feel bad that I took a few of those. I hope that you will take them and you will share them with somebody in your sphere of influence who's not already part of a church community. We don't need to pull anybody from another church. There are plenty of people who don't have community that need to be sitting with us on Good Friday as we remember the cost of what it is we just read about. And there are people who need to be here on Sunday to be reminded of the hope that we have in him, that even the grave and the brokenness of this broken world don't get the last word. So please, go be the church and invite others. And I just want to close our time together with the last words that we read in the Bible, unless you've got a study Bible, and there's a lot more words, but they're helping you make sense of what came before. The Spirit... The Holy Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears, that's you and me, say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. And he, this is Jesus, who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. 
And we say, amen, come Lord Jesus. Now the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. And all of God's people said, amen. If you are here for the first time, there's some boxes in the back. Please feel free to just drop a connection card there in the seat backs in front of you. Just let us know you were here. And that's all we ask of you. And then grab a donut on the way out so I don't have to take them home. Guys, I love you, and I look forward to getting to worship alongside of you this Easter week. Have a wonderful week and a wonderful day. Now go be the church. My soul sings.